This episode contains a discussion of an incident of police violence against an African-American man. It begins around the 24-minute mark and continues for about 90 seconds. Listener discretion is advised. Go back into South Bend's history. 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and what do you see? You see groups of people working to bring change to this city. They had different ideas of what that change should be. They didn't always agree. Yet, in every decade, there were groups of people for whom positive change was their life's work. This podcast, South Bend's Own Words, features the voices of people who helped make this city change. We'll share clips from the oral histories done by the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center that tell a more complete history of the city. It's the story of many cultures, not just one. It's the story of South Bend. Once, a person could easily pass by the vacant and abandoned Angman Natatorium along South Bend's West Washington Street and learn nothing about its history of segregation. You could go to a baseball game in the downtown ballpark and wonder why a church is shoehorned in there, but never learn that it was the site of the oldest African-American church in the city. The sounds of children playing in a wide open field, like the one by the Dream Center, echoes the sounds of thousands of children from generations past in a schoolhouse that was once the focus of our school desegregation efforts before it was abandoned and torn down. It is so easy to walk by a building without pausing, wondering, and learning about its past. But within these structures, people lived, worked, organized, played, faced challenges, built resilience, and fought for change. The challenges they faced and the lessons they learned will be in vain unless we stop, listen, and learn from them. In September of 2022, the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center launched a revamped African-American landmark tour to uncover those stories hidden deep inside so that we today can learn. And in July 2023, we're releasing an in-depth book to go along with the tour. Placing History an African-American landmark tour of South Bend, Indiana, features in-depth histories of some of the many places where local history was made. The book is available for free, in print while supplies last, and always available as an ebook by visiting aalt.iusb.edu. Today, we hear from some of the many people who lived, worked, or organized for change within some of these landmarks. First, Olivet AME, South Bend's first and oldest African-American-centered church, 
engaging generations for over 150 years. Featuring audio from Alma Powell and from one of John Charles Bryan's last oral history interviews in 2021. Alabet is the oldest African-American church in, in South Bend community. Uh, we used to be over in Monroe, right up in downtown. But just a church full of history, um, again, full of activists in this community. Once you get inside and see just the beauty, we've really done a lot to, to renovate it. Well, Olivet, uh, interesting, was a center because it was located downtown. It was a center for a lot of the, the meetings, uh, political issues, uh, meeting, NAACP meetings were frequently held there because they were were uh, integral in NAACP. In fact, our present minister, Reverend Breckenridge, was, um, his wife is on the national board of NAACP. And uh, he's, he's very active in NAACP. On, on 420 South Main Street, our church was located one block away, which was at 310 West Monroe Street. And that is the first black church in South Bend, Indiana. And that was founded by one of the trustees was Farrell Powell and then a couple of his children. And John Powell was a trustee. Uh, one of his daughters uh, was one of the trustees. And so there were about five members there were trustees of the Powell family of the eight that were um, there for the charter. And of course, you're talking about Olivet AME Church. On, on 310 West Monroe. Yeah. And there were, it was the first black church in South Bend. And the church was um, started in the 1870s. And then in 1960, they built a church that's standing at this time. My mother was a church organist at South Bend, at Olivet Church. She was there for 40 years. South Bend's African-American business district was a version of Tulsa, Oklahoma's Black Wall Street. Featuring Willie Mae Butts, Alma Powell, John Charles Bryant, and Willie Coates. So there was a thriving black business district. So you had everything there, the grocery store? Yeah, you could go to the grocery, had nice grocery stores right there next to you. Uh, in fact, it was a lovely meat market and grocery store right up under the downstairs from where his first office was. Okay. Did you ever go over to Birdsville Street? Yeah, because my church was on Birdsville Street. Okay. I could walk through the alley and I was right at church. Okay. So you knew some of the businesses along Birdsville yes, Street? Yes, um, You knew uh, Mr. Ford? Yeah, I knew Mr. Ford very much. He was my husband's cut. Uh, he was his son. Um, yeah, he used to cut my son's hair and my husband's hair. He had a little barbershop right he there. He had a little barbershop, yes. And that was a, see, it was also a, was a pool hall also there? Yeah, it was the pool hall was on, on Washington Street. Across from it. Yeah. Okay. It was down the street. <clears throat> and there was a hotel. The hotel was on, uh, not on Washington Street, it was, it was on, on Liston. 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 Mm -hmm. I remember that being there. Uh, it was a, a lot of uh, cleaners on Birdsville. Okay. 
Burns Cleaners was on Burke Street. It had so many little places there. Now, um, uh, we've, we've uh, researched some, uh, some things about the Black Business District on the west side, and uh, was Nesbitt's Cafe part of, uh, um, part of the Black Business District? Where was it located? There was a significant Black Business District out in that uh, South Park area, which is extreme west side of the area. I can remember uh, the Jones had a grocery store that was one block behind us. And what I remember most vividly about that is the exchange of, of uh, change between the two of them. Uh, Mr. Jones would run out of nickels or dollar bills, or my dad would run out of nickels or dollar bills. And uh, I can remember just, you know, as a, as a runner, me going back and forth with that exchange. Uh, I remember Mr. Hoover uh, had some businesses down on Washington Street. Uh, he had a, uh, I think it was a carry-out liquor store. Uh, certainly Reverend Perry was a pharmacist mm -hmm. that was out in that area. We had some beauticians out in that area. So while it wasn't a real significant uh, population, there was, there was a population of black businesses out there. Uh, at one point, uh, Alfred's opened their funeral home back in that location where the Jones uh, grocery store was. So it was really a, a community that uh, gelled together a community that could very well live together, uh, get along out there, exchange. You know, there was a place to get your, your drugstore items from the pharmacy. There was a place for entertainment for the family to come. I remember we had a jukebox that, that was there. So uh, we were pretty much uh, self-contained in that community. Many black people had businesses in the 40s and 50s. Um, more in that time went to neighborhood stores and um, all all areas in South Bend had little neighborhood stores where they would go to a lot of times people ran credit at neighborhood stores and would pay once a week at the end of the week when they got their check or what have you things like that and this at that time you had new ways which was a large uh, chain you had the AMP, which was the Atlantic Pacific, and um, I don't know if Kroger's was in in the 50s, but it, if it wasn't, it came in around that time. Um, and a lot of the larger uh, conglomerates have bought out and made things unavailable for small businesses at this time. Well, and in the South, because of segregation, you had black business, completely black, and it was, so, you know, integration helped us and hurt us. Well, yeah, all your Both. dollars go out to Walmart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Because uh, you know, black people couldn't go to the Y, or it was a mirror image of you know, the black business district. Gotcha. Birdsell and Liston and Washington and Linden Streets. The West Side Recreation Club a center of local black political and social power beginning in 1929, was also a frequent target of local police. With David Healy, Gladys Muhammad, Anita Roberts, Charlie Howell, and Marguerite Taylor. Well, Charles Wills was one of the officers of the NAACP in the early days, and he took everybody to court. <laughs> Took the theaters to court. Took the restaurants to court. He took everybody to court. Uh, he was tenacious. 
in challenging segregation in this community in the 30s and early 40s. Made it his mission. Huh? He made it his mission. Is he the one that had the office on Virgil Street? That building is still there. It's a little brick building in the corner of Washington and Virgil Street. They okay. had a bar downstairs. Okay. But upstairs in the early 1920s, oh, not early, I suppose about 1928. Uh, it's still there. It's still yeah. there. Very important building in, in African American history in this town. But that office upstairs was inhabited by Dr. Streets, uh, J. Chester Allen, and uh, Charles Wills. All three of them for about a year were mm -hmm. in the top, in the offices upstairs. But for a, a while, can you imagine the conversations that happened in that building in the formation of the Sanhedrin Club? Um, it must have been phenomenal. Now, if I remember correctly, Hank Hill was on the corner. Corner of Washington and Birdsell. Birdsell. And um, uh, below Zelford Carter's right. office. Before that, Zelford shared that office, I believe, with a doctor, but I'm not quite positive of that. And but the daddy had a pool hall on Washington. Blanton, you say? Yeah, had a pool hall on the corner of Washington and Berthold. Okay. Boy Blanton, Madeline Blanton, Lewis was pretty black. He graduated from Adam. And they lived on what might have been. They lived. They lived over here, but he worked. He had his business out there. Uh, there were a lot of black businesses on on Washington and Chapin. Yeah. That's where. I, I, oh yeah. My dad used to go to restaurants over there. We, we were. There were none over there. Well, the Blanton had the business look here and the policy window. They had the biggest policy world. And Mama Chicken and everybody had the answers. Alberta. Well, it's been through Smith. Alberta. Uh -huh. Blanton. Oh, I see. It's quite a town. Built in 1890, it wasn't until the mid-20th century that Linden School became the first to hire African-American faculty and staff. After a lawsuit alleged intentional racial segregation and disinvestment, Linden was abandoned and then torn down. Here are Bernard Streets Jr. and Barbara Vance Brandy. I grew up on South Bend's west side on Birdsell Street near Linden School. Uh, I went to Linden School Elementary. Um, the neighborhood was um, very integrated. Uh, I would say predominantly people of Polish background, Hungarian, uh, one Norwegian family, couple Italian families, uh, African-American families. It was a truly integrated uh, neighborhood in and around uh, uh, Linden School. But uh, it's safe to say that sometimes uh, they were told by certain people that send your children to these schools here because there are too many Negro kids coming to this school. So when I started Linden School in the kindergarten in the September of 1938, it was like about 90%, 85%, you know, white, 10 to 15% black. By the time I graduated from Linden Junior High in June of 48, uh, it was about the reverse. Okay, another interesting thing was, in, I don't remember in all my years at Linden, especially from like say grade four up, that we ever had any new books. 
it always had the mark either measle or uh, nooner or uh, uh, those at the school. So we got used books. But I remember in biology in the ninth grade, Mr. Phelps' class, we I celebrated because first time we got a new textbook. It wasn't a handoff from another school. I went to Linden. That's where Martin Luther King Center is now. And I went to the ninth grade there. We've heard a lot about Linden, too. Yes. When I left, in my class, there were 13 people. One was a white girl and one was a white boy. No, two white boys and one white girl was in that class of 13 students. The school was predominantly black back in 48, 49. It was getting that way because they were starting to have what you call white flight in most of the neighborhoods. About the only, the only whites in the neighborhood was the old Polish families or Hungarian families that refused to move because they were embedded in the community. Mm -hmm. Owned their homes and all that. And, and then a lot of them owned the grocery stores and the bakeries, so that was the thing. Mm -hmm. Any, any uh, white teachers? Oh, any, yes. any black teachers, I mean? Not when I was at Linden, no. no. They, the principal and everyone was white. The teachers were quite old. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them even wondered how yeah. long they were going to be there. Because <laughs> a number of them had taught my mother when she went to Linda. Is that right? Mm -hmm. How are the relations between the black and white students? Very good. good. Very good. In fact, the white girl in the class that we had was my best friend. We would go to each other's home. But the strange thing was that once we got to Central, and I would see her in the hall and speak because we weren't in the same homeroom. And she began to make friends of other whites. She quit speaking. And I thought that was a little odd because I befriended her when none of the other black mm -hmm. students would. And now that she had friends of whites, she did not know me. It kind of hurt for a while, but then I said, well, consider this work and you leave it alone. But she's the one that loved. She loved. <laughs> the area around Beck's Lake on the far west side of South Bend was just the lake to the generations of African-American people who grew up there. It was a source of generational pride, despite also being a site of environmental injustice. We hear from Willie Mae Butts, George McCulloch, Lynn Coleman, George Nagu, Willie Coates, and Karen White. What was Beck's Lake like? Oh gosh. It was just like the pits of, uh, of uh, the South. No street lights, no, walk, no, no, no sidewalks for the children to walk on. And the streets may have just enough to go down the street with one car, you know, maybe a couple of cars, but most of the streets were dirt. The majority of them were dirt roads, like, like a hard dirt, you know, that you go through, because you get a lot of dust. There's no sewers up there either. There were no sewers or nothing. What were the homes like? 
Well, they had, uh, when I first went out there, we first went out there, they had those homes that they had out there for the, for the, um, uh, the war, you know, when they put those Virex houses. Charles Black and I, and several of the other guys, we live in the Black projects. Um, Were those World War II projects? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they had pot belly stoves. Yeah. And what we would do is, uh, in the evening, in the wintertime, we would all sit around the stove, get warm, we'd run and get in the bed. And we'd wake up in the morning, it would be, it would be cold, and ice would have formed around the baseboard of the uh, room because the pot belly stove was on, the brick would sweat. Oh, yeah. And then at night, when the fire died down, the ice along the bottom of the floor that was concrete would freeze. And, you know, those are the kind of conditions we lived in. And then after that, they built the, uh, the wooden projects. Uh, and, and we thought that was something, man. And then we moved from the brick to the wooden projects. And as a kid, uh, it was fun. Uh, we were poor. Uh, didn't realize it because everybody was. Right. Um, um, I lived 200 block of Kenmore Street. Um, so when I was a kid, Kenmore Street, uh, in the area that I lived in, the back of Kenmore Street was the start of uh, a dump, a city dump. Okay. And so uh, where LaSalle Park is right now, all of that was grown up, uh, was a dump, wasn't cleaned off, it was not a park. Um, and that didn't happen until mid late 60s uh, they started cleaning that up and, and that kind of thing so that's where we played at and that's that was our life well i think i think what happened was there, there was a lot of frustration in the south park area because we thought that well we knew that we were being ignored totally um, as a neighborhood as a race of people we knew that we were getting hand, handed down books from pearly um, you open it up on the inside and the book would be 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, our streets were just terrible. We still had dirt streets back in the 60s. Uh, huge potholes, uh, no police protection at all. Uh, you could call a police officer, they might show up and they, they might not. Not even a black police officer no, showed in the area? Uh, no. We didn't see a police officer. They would not patrol the area at all. We just felt that uh, something needed to be done in order to clean up the neighborhood. We had people like uh, Mrs. Brody. Uh, Annette Oliver, uh, I can't remember some of the other names, uh, I can see their faces, but those are the people that actually stepped out front and said, look, something needs to be done in our neighborhood because our children are suffering. And, and so it got to the point where uh, if, you, if you're not going to do anything, we'll have to take some action. We began burning homes, uh, throwing rocks at cars. And vacant houses mm -hmm. you were burning. In the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, throwing rocks at at, we'd go up to Western Avenue and actually throw rocks and, and stuff at white people as they drove down Western Avenue. That night I drove around Harrison School, high school. You know, it was a beautiful evening, I remember that. Jeez, much to my amazement, you know, here was a bunch of policemen in uh, riot gear, you know, with helmets and batons and everything. And I said, what in the world? You know, because I, mm -hmm. I was not made aware by the police. And here I had worked hard to, you know, to, uh, you know, try to maintain relations with the police, you know, and improve communications and 
you know, it was obvious the left hand didn't know what the right, right hand yeah. was doing and didn't, didn't want it, you know. And uh, so I, I thought this was serious. And from what I understand, that uh, they were throwing the bottles and things, you know, out in the street, and throwing at cars, you know, police, you know, were the recipients of some of that. And, but I know that, I know that the uh, situation became quite serious rapidly. There were Molotov cocktails thrown. The Western Avenue uh, in, in those three days became, uh, it looked like a war zone, all up and down. I mean, not just in that one area, you know, but I mean, all the way down to the downtown area. There was plywood in the windows, you know, uh, from, you know, things, cars were overturned. I saw firebombs thrown. I, I didn't sleep for about 72 hours. You know. And I think that the reason that it really got out of hand and Melvin Phillips was shot was because we, we brought it across Western Avenue. We okay. left the neighborhood. See, as long as we were doing it down in our neighborhood, it got so bad at one time, uh, we were burning homes, uh, that we started throwing rocks at the firemen. They just took off, let the homes burn to the ground. But when we crossed Western Avenue, which is where, ironically, that's where the neighborhood center was located. Center was located, yes. Because the thing at the center was a meeting of blacks to talk about, okay, let's try to calm this thing down. What are we doing here? What's going to happen? What direction are we going to take? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember the officer's name that went in there and shot the place up with the submachine gun. Yeah, I can't remember his name. They opened fire with, with submachine gun. He went in there and shot it up. He became a uh, security guard here at IUSB. That's where he ended up at. Is that right? Yes. Finished up his term. But they said they thought they heard shots come from in the center. And what yes, it was, somebody said. had thrown a chair, from what I understand, and broke a glass. And so that was when the police opened fire. And Melvin went there to get his brother. To get his brother Thomas out of the center, out of harm's way, as it were, because Melvin was not involved at all in the riot. My, Melvin was working. He, had, in fact, was supposed to be at work then, but he heard about it and knew that his brother was stuck up in there, and he came and pushed his way past the police. I remember that because I was coming up about the same time. He came up to where the police were. They had cordoned off the street right there in front of the center. And he said, man, I got to get my brother. So he went across the street there over to the center on the south side of Western Avenue to get his brother out of the center. And the next thing I saw as I stood there was him running. So he ran. He's on the south side of the street. He's running west on Western Avenue. He crosses the street and comes running back towards where me and my friend were standing. So now he's running east and he's on the north side of the street and he's running towards us. And the next thing I did, dog was after him. And next thing I hear this shot, and he falls down, and blood is everywhere. Did you see results that you thought were were really tangible as a result of the pressure that you brought? We we saw some things that uh, that that the city did to pacify the people uh, for a short period of time. For example. Uh, uh, they did pave the streets. Uh, we did see uh, some police presence. They began driving through uh, the recreation center. I, I forgot that year it was it was built, but I ended up working there for a short period of time. Uh, but after that, then they sort of abandoned the neighborhood, and it's still abandoned today. And as you drive through, you can see that the homes are beginning to deteriorate. The streets are beginning to to, to get bad again. So it was just a means of pacifying the people at the time. It was wonderful 
because everyone knew each other. Uh, we had a sense of community. Um, for example, my family, we were the largest family that lived on Kimmore. And so neighbors took care of neighbors. So everyone knew each other. Uh, we shared food. Um, uh, we had a pastor at that time, Dave Davison, that lived further down the street on Kimmore. And he took care of everyone in the family. If he saw that we were getting ourselves into situations, he would always sit on the porch. So when school was let out, we would walk, you know, down Kimmore. And Pastor Davis was right on that, you know, sitting on his porch. He would speak and he said, I'm going to tell your mother, I'm going to tell your father. And everyone had the, the uh, responsibility of taking care of everyone in that neighborhood. So it was a great, great experience. Even though we were poor, I'm talking about extremely poor, we never did go without because it was a sense of community, a sense, uh, sense of love, and just that everyone was part of each other in that particular town. For nearly 40 years, the Herring House provided a space for local art, leadership training, youth services, and community building for a generation of Black youth. With Jerome Perkins, Jackie Ivory, and Lucille Sneed. You know, it always amazed me the YMCA. It, that was the Young Men's Christian Association, and yet we couldn't go to it. And the YMCA was downtown, where the library is now. It's like old building we tore down to build a library. And we went to the Herring House. And it just, it just seemed so strange to me that here, YMCA, and what it stood for, and yet it excluded us. But the Herring House was a gem. If it hadn't been for the Herring House, as I think back, I don't know what would happen. That became the focal point for black youth. And uh, because of that place, stayed out of a lot of trouble. You know, your parents would let you go to the Herring House. As a musician here, basically, I started uh, Beating up the piano at the hearing house at the early age. I mean, uh, that was, except for up and down Scott Street, was the only real place for the kids to go. Uh, it was uh, safe, uh, and they had a few things there that were, you could entertain yourself with, such as poop table and such things. Uh, the old jukebox at the hearing house, you had a nickel you could go in there and play what they had on there, and they had a couple. They had one tune on there by Lloyd playing the old time shuffle blues, and I just like that. In fact, I learned how to play that. So it sounds like Herring House was a lot. I mean, I, I'm trying to kind of figure out Herring House was a lot of everything. It was. It was. Um, they really loved young people, and uh, they did a lot to uh, help to mold their characters. And yet, it was a place where. Um, on some Sundays, they would have um, maybe a mass program there. Something had happened in the community that uh, all of the community needed to know about. It was held in Herring House. Um, can you recall an example of what 
when you say something happened in the community? I, I can't uh, quote exactly what happened, but I think there was a young black man that had been killed. And uh, people were quite upset about it. And there was a great discussion about it. And of course, it was held at Harry House. I rightly don't remember the outcome of this, but I think that it was talked about in the community. Yes. The people who ran South Bend's first indoor city-owned swimming pool denied entry to African Americans for nearly 30 years. Its transformation into the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center is a powerful symbol of how the past must be bravely recognized and repaired. Finally, Madeline's mothers, David Healy and Gladys Muhammad. When you were growing, or not growing up, when you were here in South Bend as a young lady, did you go to the natatorium? I went to the natatorium on a regular basis. I, I, I was interested in swimming. As I was told, in a, lot, a lot of, we colored people didn't swim. We didn't have pools to go to. But I went regularly. At first, we couldn't go but once a month. And then it go, got so you could go every week. Can't remember the days. I think it was Monday. Well, oh, I remember it was Monday. Yeah, they did pick Monday. They selected Monday as the day that the colored folks could come. Throughout the natatorium, it was a it was a major foundation of forming black political power in this city. Three of the people involved became state representatives: J. Chester Allen, Jesse Dickinson, Zilford Carter. This is 1936. Uh, 36 was a big year at the natatorium. There's a lot of things going on there. While the taxpayers were sleeping, sipping beer, chatting or lounging in the city council, the city council was passing a measure appropriating $25,000 to repair the public natatorium. They will help pay this sum, but they dare not look in the building to see what it is like. Not one of them took the trouble to go to the council meeting and protest the expenditure. He's talking to the black community. Elizabeth Fetzer Allen, when her writings did much the same thing. But Jesse Dickinson wasn't afraid to uh, tell the black community, you need to do something. Well, he said this is the last building standing that tells the story of uh, segregation in South Bend and also the black, the change that occurred in South Bend. And the other thing I want to say too is that Charlotte Pfeiffer and Karen was on the city council, and, and they were from Indiana University, too. That made it really good. <laughs> but they voted for the project, and Charlotte was the person that never would let them tear it down. Over the years, about every four years, they would say, well, this old building is over here, and we should probably tear it down. And Charlotte would say, no, no, let's just keep it. Let's just keep it. I'm sure she never knew why she wanted it kept. Do you know what I mean? And so I kind of feel like because it was still there, that maybe this is the way it should be. Get your own free copy of the Placing History Book with even more in-depth histories as told by the people who lived them. Go to aalt.iusb.edu to find out how to get a physical copy or download the ebook.
South Bend Zone Words was created by Kevin Tidmarsh and me, George Garner. This episode was produced by Natalie Villalobos and by me through the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center. As always, you can see and hear more history, plan a visit, or share your thoughts about this episode at crhc.iusb.edu.